Cinco de Mayo. Isn't that the official Mexican holiday, Cinco de Mayo, which means the 5th of May? For those of you that don't speak Spanish, <laughs> I don't speak Spanish, but I knew that. Chester, you knew that. Anyway, it is Cinco de Mayo, May the 5th, 2021, and this is Bob Bro. Welcome to the best old-time radio podcast for Wednesday, May the 5th, and on Wednesdays we play for you a uh, an old-time radio mystery, and we've got a good one lined up today. So if it's bright and sunny where you are, or if it's pouring rain, or whatever it might be, what I need you to do now, these are my instructions to you. I want you to go over to that big easy chair, get your feet up, and relax. Get a little refreshment, and just let the cares of the day drift away, because coming up in just a moment is this week's old-time radio mystery. that music and you almost expect someone to say it was a dark stormy night well I just wanted to get you in the mood after the little festive uh, song we had coming in to get you in the mood for a mystery little radio noir and that's what we're going to present to you now in the uh, embodiment of an episode of the adventures of Philip Marlowe This one goes all the way back to 1949, November the 26th. It was heard on CBS, and it's entitled Birds on the Wing. Now, as always with Philip Marlowe, I must caution you, or admonish you, or advise you to listen carefully. (laughs) Because Phil talks fast, and there's a lot of characters in Well, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to name the characters, that'll just confuse you, but this has to do with an aerial act, not a a trapeze when I say aerial, an airplane act, all right? These people walk out on the planes of an, uh, uh, on the wings of an old biplane and they parachute off, all right? But they don't open their parachute until they're 500 feet from the ground, not real conducive to uh, a person trying to buy life insurance you know I, I anyway the there the three characters two men and a lady all right and then there's a a third man who is the rich guy who is sort of the subject of the show tonight so that might help you there's 
there's two guys and a lady that are the original act and then this rich guy comes in all right and then there's also another another fella who's sort of important to the story he's the guy that packs their parachutes but he's not one of them he's another guy all right just keep that in mind and it may be easier to follow along with this so here we go this is birds on the wing uh, is the name of the episode the show is the adventures of philip marlowe and it was broadcast november 1949 Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. They dress in red, white, and blue and jump from an ancient biplane at 3,500 feet. Twice a day, every day, and nobody worried. Until five million bucks went along just for the laughs, and death went along for the ride. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Birds on the Wing. It had been the kind of quiet, workless week that speaks well for human beings and their relations with one another... But it doesn't do much for a private detective's bank balance. So when at exactly noon, a telephone call had jerked me out of Chandler's new novel, The Little Sister, and a voice aged with anxiety had dangled a hundred bucks worth of negotiable bait my way, I had snapped at it. But then, I wondered if I'd done the right thing. Because it had been my must, Hattie Pembroke, guardian of the millionaire thrill-seeking screwball Paige Pembroke. And now, an hour later, I left the sunlight and felt my way into the gloom of the carefully tucked away Hollywood bar where she had suggested we meet. When I could see again, I spotted her at a corner table. That the old girl would be the other side of 50 and doing a little too much to disguise it, I had expected. But that she would be drinking her whiskey neat, I hadn't. When I approached her and introduced myself, she started to come right to the point, but didn't quite make it. How rude of me. I'm sorry. You're probably dying for a drink. Oh, waiter. Well, frankly, no, Miss Pembroke. I'm not exactly oh, dying. Oh, now, I... now, now. I know you men in your early afternoon appetite for a friendly drink. There's no harm in it. Matter of fact, I've already had... Well, I've had a small drink myself. No fooling. Oh, waiter. Uh, this gentleman's order, please. Oh, yes, ma'am. Well, what'll be, sir? Scotch and soda. If the lady will join me. Oh, no, no. I couldn't. I... Really? Well, all right. Uh, <laughs> scotch for me too, waiter. Johnny Walker. Yes, ma'am. Now, Mr. Marlowe, let's get down to business. Have you ever been to Oxnard, California? Uh-huh. Good. Because that's where my nephew is. Also, it's where the Calumet Valley County Fair is being held. Really? Whatever that may be. Most important, it's where you can probably find out what kind of trouble Paige is in. You see the poor boys... Down to his last five million bucks. Now, I'm sorry, Miss Pembroke. I don't think I want the job after all. Now, one moment. Why not? Well, frankly, I hope you'll excuse the reference to actual living persons, but your polo-playing, motorboat-racing, daredevil nephew is a jerk. Uh, I know. Paige Pembroke the third is an unmitigated ass, a virile egomaniac, an idiot who's never done an honest day's work in his life. Wait, where is that dream? Right here, ma'am. 
Oh, thank you. Now, Mr. Marlowe, sit down, drink your drink. When I referred to my nephew as a poor boy in trouble, I was only trying to avoid saying all this. Oh. Your health, sir? Yes. Uh, well, my health. Now, your next question. Since I obviously share your sentiments about my nephew, why all this concern over him, correct? Uh, close. Right. I want to help Paige Pembroke, Mr. Marlowe, because it's my job. My, shall I say, bread and butter? All right, say it. You see, I'm executor of his estate, which my brother, Paige's father, left for him. Well, as such, I get $20,000 a year until Paige is 35, another six years. But if Paige should die, disappear, or be committed to any kind of a public institution... Hmm? Institution. Oh. Before then, the entire estate goes to charity and... I go find another job. And specialized jobs like handling $5 million estates are hard to come by these days, huh? Now, Mr. Marlowe, this letter here is all you have to go on. It was postmarked last night from Oxnard. Read, read. Oh. If you want your precious nephew to keep on being healthy, you'd better come and get him at once. The three of us had a nice little act going here at the Calumet Valley County Fair before he joined us just for laughs. We intend to have a nice little act going after he's gone. And one way or another, he's going to go... A friend. Yeah? Well, what do you think? Oh, it's five to one. It's nothing more than a woman spurned. Very young woman, Miss Pembroke. So you might be wasting $100 sending me up there. Then you'll go. Good. Yeah, but only because of my bank account. Mr. Marlowe, there'll be another $100 for you if and when you get all this straightened out. Now, now, call me at my home, Beverly Hills. Crestview 5412. 4124? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you find out what's wrong. and Oh, uh, Oh, Mr. Marlowe. Yes, Miss Pembroke. On your way out, signal the waiter for me, will you please? The ride to Oxnard was a pleasant but frustrating hour and a half drive along the kind of beckoning sun-scrubbed Pacific shoreline that always demands to know why you have to work for a living. The ride through Oxnard to the sprawling county fairgrounds located at a semi-retired airport was a fast ten minutes. So all in all, it was a little better than three o'clock, and there was still a measure of boyish bounce in my stride when I started past the prized cows and plain and fancy leghorns and headed for the midway, looking for the act Paige Pembroke had joined just for laughs. But it was four o'clock, and I had checked a half a dozen death-defying numbers before I was standing in front of a banner Columbus could have used for a sale and said I was getting warm. In iridescent orange cloth on black, it read, The Plunging Comets... Taffy Star and Midge Maynard on wings of death with fearless Eddie Knapp at the controls. The greatest parachute act in the world, admission free. 5 and 9 p.m., north end of the midway. Come one, come all. <laughs> yeah, this had to be it. At the north end of the midway, just outside of a sagging, weather-peeled hangar, I found the World War I biplane that went with the plunging comets being mothered by a mechanic who didn't have grease on his face. And beyond that, on an inside wall of the hangar, with the parachutes used in the act, each on a separate hook, its owner's name carefully block-lettered on a card tacked above, Taffy, Midge, and Eddie. And then, scrawled in black crayon, the name I wanted most of all to see, Paige. Lost something, mister? The voice went with the woman and the woman with the act. At the top, there was what used to be called the boyish bob sticking out of a white aviator's helmet circa 1918. Then a bright red leather jacket opened wide at the throat. Black riding breeches, black boots. The color of hair that stuck out and said this one was taffy. I asked if you lost something. Have you? 
Well, come to think of it, yes. Six foot two, eyes are blue, and carries a big, big checkbook. <laughs> Seen one around? Maybe. Why? Who are you? Name's Philip Marlowe, the millionaire's friend. I'm a yacht salesman. Here's my card. Never mind your I, uh... card or the very funny jokes. Now, what do you really want? Paige Pembroke, before he breaks his neck in your act, or isn't he in it yet? I don't remember. Now, your point, what is it? A letter you could have written. A letter that says Paige is in trouble. Where is he? Goodbye, Mr. Marlowe. Take it easy, Wings. Ah, you wouldn't want to hold out on somebody who's only trying to help Brother Page, would you? I mean, what reason could you possibly have? Other than five million bucks you might want for your very own. Why, you... <coughs> I said goodbye. What's the matter, Taffy? You having problems? Yeah. This Mr. Yacht Salesman is Emmett Kingston, head of the fairs Midway. And you'd be surprised how popular he is with the concessionaries. Now where you going? What else? Good day, Miss Taffy, Mr. Kingston. You know, sometimes it works. Lead with your chin, ride with a punch and watch for your opening. And I figured I'd try it just that way. So ten minutes later, when Emmett Kingston, who was carnival people from checkered vest past ornate watch fob the high-button shoes, and shaped like a bowling pin, left Taffy and started trundling down the midway, I went after him. When he stopped in front of a lunch wagon, I stopped too. And when he went in, approached the man playing pinball machine, who was maybe five foot four, and from where I stood conscious of it, I was still behind him. At the pinball machine, a stranger with a thin face that wore a nervous toothpick was also watching the little man's game. Oh, boy, Doc, it's preaching. So when I moved closer to the trio, my face turned away from Kingston. Nobody well, seemed to mind. Well, I see. Jack of many trades, I see. What? Oh, oh, Mr. Kingston, uh, how are you, sir? Fine, Hershey, just fine. 800 more is jackpot, Doc. Come on, come on. Uh, you wanted to speak to me, Mr. Kingston? No, Hershey, nothing important except about last night. Uh, uh, last night, sir? Yeah. You were working late for a parachute rigger, weren't you, boy? Or uh, am I wrong to consider two o'clock in the morning an odd hour for you to be folding these silks? Hey, Doc, you're going to shoot it, aren't you? Which? Of course she is. Go on, I'll shoot for the uh, gentleman. Uh, yes, sir. Hey, 2000... Three thousand, four thousand. Hey, that's great. Now do that again with your last ball, Doctor. Uh, was there something else, Mister Kingston? Yes, yeah, she. Why were you near the shoots at that hour? And uh, don't bother denying that you were, because that inap saw you there. Well, son. Well, I, I was there to double check the rigors, Mister Kingston. Hey, look, I'm sick and tired of Mitch Maynard complaining about the way I pack her shoot. It's a stupid excuse, just trying to cover the fact that she's losing her nerve. Hey, hey, boys, don't ignore me. There's half of the jacket. Shut up, you, and get going. Uh, Rosie, get this uh, stumble bum out of here, will you? Sure, Mr. Kingston, whatever you say. Oh, and it's social, huh? All right, all right, Doc, I'm going. My own free will, too. But I could stay if I wanted to. Ah, uh, Hershey, you were saying... Well, just this, Mr. Kingston. Uh, Mitch Maiden and Taffy start fighting because of that Pembroke fellow, or, or because Eddie Knapp is crazy about Taffy is one thing. But, but bringing me and my work into it is different. Meaning? The parachutes Mitch and Taffy use are identical. In the act, both girls jump from the plane wing at the same time. But Midge always gets scared and opens a shoe sooner than Taffy. So Taffy is on the ground long before Midge. But this has nothing to do with the way I rigged the shoes, and I think... All right, you're... all right, Hershey. Nobody's blaming you, and I... Uh, say, you. Yeah? You, uh, wouldn't be trying to sell another yacht in here, would you? Just waiting for the finish of an exciting pinball game. Isn't that all right, or is it time to call Rosie again? No, no, it's quite all right. We're leaving. Uh, you try for the jackpot. Uh, come on, Hershey, it's about time for the five o'clock show. Oh, yes, Mr. King. Hmm, only 40,000 to go.
it's the first time I ever hit the jackpot. Oh, that's pretty good, Mr. Marlowe, considering that it wasn't your nickel you won on. Oh. Now that you mention it, Mr. Pembroke, it wasn't. Which should take care of the introductions, Yeah. And that leaves very little. But something. But definitely. Marlowe, you can tell Aunt Hattie from me that at the moment I don't need a watchdog. And when and if I do, I'll go to the nearest city pound for one, not to a private detective agency. I told myself it was foolish to slam the door on my way out. So I slammed the door on my way out. I started north down the midway toward the open stands and the five o'clock sharp performance of the plunging comets. When I got there, the act was already underway with the silver biplane taking off. Eddie Knapp and White at the controls, Taffy in her red jacket and parachute crouched on one wing, Mitch Maynard in blue jacket and shoot on the other. Then as they slowly gained altitude, High Button Shoes himself took over the PA. They did it up well. And by the time the plane was at about 3,000 feet, every pair of eyes was riveted skyward. And an expectant hush thicker than winter fog had settled everywhere. At 
Everywhere the chill of the viciously spectacular death lay like a soggy blanket. At the exposition office, I found a phone and finally got through to Hattie Pembroke. She listened up to the word murder and then, between gasps, insisted on coming out to help me. When I hung up, I turned to see that the pilot, Eddie Knapp, had been standing in the door, listening. He looked sick. What's it to you, mister? What's what to me? Midge. The long drop she took out there. And Pembroke. I heard you say Pembroke. What do you got to do with him? Just a minute, fella. I'm not sure it's any of your business. It's my business, all right. The kid gave me a big grin up there just before she jumped. And I watched her fall every inch of the way. So did everybody else. Look, I know how you feel, Eddie, You don't have any idea how I feel. Don't try to kid me. That mob out there loved it. That's the only reason they come to watch, the hypocritical buzzards. You got a finger in this pie, and angle all your own. I'm going to find out what it is. Take it easy, Nap. You're talking yourself into something real silly. Yeah? Listen, ever since that louse Pembroke showed up here, there's been trouble brewing. Now Midge is dead. She was a friend of mine. Best friend I had. Aren't you pulling a switch, Buster? What happened to your red-hot passion for Taffy Star? Oh, you know she... Come here, you jerk. Look out my yeah, arm. Buzz boy, and unless you want to take over the busted wing, stand still. Now get this, Eddie. I've got no beef with you yet. In fact, we might even be on the same team because I want Pembroke out of here just as much as you do. So pull off. Who are you? Private detective named Marlowe. I got news for you. Midge fell because her shoot was fixed. She was murdered. Mur- you heard me. Where? Where's Hershey? He packed the shoots. Have you talked to him? No, I can't find him. You mean he's run away? With that filthy half-pint now, psycho? Now for your own sake, Eddie. Leave Hershey to me and the police. You know where he's staying? No, no, I don't. In town someplace. But didn't he ever tell you where? Come on, thank Eddie. Well, yeah, he told me he had a buddy in town. Some guy who runs a pool hall. I didn't pay much attention. That's enough for a starter. I'll find him. And keep a lid on your temper, Eddie. I'll see you. As I crossed the grounds to my car, I looked back once at Eddie Knapp standing in the office door, rubbing the shoulder I twisted for him. I hoped he'd stay out of circulation until I got back because the barnstorming flyer was charged up like a high-tension wire. The way he felt there'd be sparks no matter who he touched. Taffy, Pembroke, or Lyle Hershey. My immediate worry was the location of the lambing parachute packer, so I drove into Oxnard, found a phone booth, and went through the book calling pool parlors. I finally hit pay dirt at a joint called Pindy's. It's 212B Street, upstairs in the back. 212B Street was an apartment, second floor rear over a boarded-up fish market. I went up the stairs to the half-open door with my hand around my 38. But the shooting part was all over. Because Lyle Hershey was crumpled in the bedroom door with the slovenly abandon that violent death always has. And the look of the puddle of blood under him had been that way over an hour. I started backing out. Just as someone else started up the stairs. So I flattened myself against the wall beside the kitchen door and waited. Lyle. Lyle, it's Taffy. I... Come on in. Take a good look, Taffy. What are you doing in here? Where's Lyle? It's a great act, baby. Holds water like a duck's back. What do you mean? That wherever there's murder, there's also motive, and you've got it, Taffy. Lots of it. Me? What are you talking about? Maybe he's dead, and maybe you killed him. Keep him quiet, because maybe he fouled up Midge Maynard's parachute on your orders. Consequently, he had you over a barrel. On my orders? You're out of your mind. And maybe you had to get Midge out of the way because you objected to Paige Pembroke and his idle millions honing into the act. Objected so strenuously that she was doing something about it, such as sending threats to his Aunt Hattie. Let's face it, baby, it fits. But not tight enough, Marlowe. Oh, Paige, darling. Taffy, I got worried when you didn't come back to the car, so I decided... Hey. Don't move, Marlowe, or I'll shoot. Pembroke, if you got any sense in that gold-plated skull of yours... I'll show you... it, Marlowe. I stood outside and listened to enough of your crackpot theories to know you're nuts. 
I don't need any advice from you at this point, so keep your long nose out of my business. Now listen, you have brain oh, dope. just stand there like a good little boy. Taffy and I are leaving. And don't try to follow too fast. Go on, Taffy, outside. I'll follow you. So long, detective. I let him go. Spent 20 useless minutes searching the almost bare apartment for any kind of an answer, but came up with nothing. Hershey's buddy at my feet convinced me there was nothing in Oxnard for Marlowe. And the sooner I dumped the whole mess into the laps of local law and order, the better. So I kicked out the ten-cent lock on the flimsy door and went down the stairs. I cut through an alley to the street and started across to where my car was parked. And I was bracketed by a pair of headlights on a sleek Nash convertible. Hey there, Marlowe! Marlowe, what you doing here, boy? Nothing. Even that's an exaggeration, Kingston. What about you? I thought you had a show tonight. I certainly do, but the police don't give a hoot about that, boy. No. They insisted that I bring the rest of Midge Maynard's parachute harness in for investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, get in and come on, will you, son? Maybe you can help me out. Okay. I want to see the police myself. Oh, is this Midge's stuff here? That's it. Don't mind holding it, do you? Oh. You know, this is a waste of time, boy. All they have to do is pick up Lyle Hershey and they'll get all the answers. They'll have to pick him up, all right, but he'll give them problems, not answers, Mr. Kingston. Lyle Hershey's dead. He was uh, murdered. You see, Lyle... Yeah, yeah, I just came from his place. Somebody shot him. Great suffering sardines. Well, uh, that means there's another killer. And uh, still on the loose. Uh, I knew I shouldn't let him do it. Let who do what? Why, Taffy's going to give an air performance tonight. They pulled me in at the grounds just as I was leaving and told me... That uh, Pembroke fella's going up in Midge's place. You mean those two showed up out yeah. there? Doesn't make sense. Well, Pembroke's got plenty of nerve in his own shoot, so I guess... Shoot? He's... Yeah, he's... Uh... Wait a minute, wait a minute, Kingston. Stop under that streetlight, will you? Why, uh-huh. What is it, Marlo? What are you looking at? Sure, sure. Red smudges on the inside of these straps. Something wrong here, Kingston, but I can't quite peg it. Say... Kingston, what time was that performance going to start? Why, nine o'clock. Five minutes and five miles to go. Come on, boy, turn the heap around and romp on it. We got a killer to catch. Swing out in front of the hangar, Kingston. Hurry. It's empty. They're already out on the runway. Yeah, it's one parachute still on the rack. Why, that's Eddie Knapp's chute, and he never goes up without it. So who's at the controls of that plane out there? I don't even have to guess. It's Eddie Knapp, all right, but he figures a suicide doesn't need a shoot. Pile out, Kingston. as far as you go. I'm taking over from what? here. What are you talking about? Come on, about? move. Get out. They're turning around now. Yeah, he's going to make us run back this way. So long, Kingston. Here he comes. Well, what are you doing? Come back. I waited until there was no possible chance for a miss. Then I headed the car straight into the path of the plane, pulled the hand throttle out as far as it would go, and jumped. <laughs> easy. The plane sort of stumbled over the car, rolled up on its nose and stayed there. Quick work by the volunteer crash crew took care of that. A box of bandages took care of the collection of minor cuts and bruises all around and the Oxnard police took care of Eddie Knapp. Everything had come out more or less even, except my client, Hattie Pembroke. She showed up at the finish line slightly on the bias, which no doubt was her normal late evening state. Also, she was as full of questions as an insurance adjuster. Now, young man, I paid you a substantial sum of money for this day's work, and therefore, as your employer, I'm certainly entitled to a comprehensive report of the entire business. And I insist... All right, all right, Hattie, Hattie, whoa. (laughs) I'll run through it once more, and that's all. Now, look, first, the threatening letter you got was written by Midge Maynard because she was afraid Paige was going to break up the act, you get it? But the real screwball was Eddie Knapp. 
He was crazy about Taffy's tar and insanely jealous when your nephew and his money showed up. Knapp decided if he couldn't have Taffy, nobody else would, because he'd kill her. And yet Midge Maynard was the one who got killed. You catch on quick. Knapp killed Hershey because he was afraid Hershey had seen him tampering with the chutes. You get that? No. Oh. On second thought, Milo, maybe you better submit a written report tomorrow. Yeah, with adding machine and clothes. Now, look, Hattie, it's not hey, the... Marlo. Marlo, Paige and I want to apologize. We treated you pretty badly tonight, and, well, you did save our lives. Business is business. Yeah, that's right. He was hired to do a job, dear, and he did it. I'm only interested in one thing, Marlo. How'd you know it was Eddie Knapp? Well, nobody had a really good motive for killing both Midge and Hershey, so... When I realized the shoots had been switched, I knew Midge's murder was a mistake. From there, it was easy. How'd you find that out, Marlo? From red smudges on the inside of the harness shoulder straps. Red that had to come from your leather jacket there, Taffy. The one Midge always wore was blue. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, Hattie, write the detective a check so he can go. That's the best idea you've had to date, Pembroke. And include on it the price of a repair job on Kingston's car, a new tweed suit to replace this one that lost knees and elbow on the runway when I jumped. And also, don't forget the bonus you promised for keeping your job alive, Hattie. Oh, just a minute, Marlowe. As for you, Pembroke, the only reason I'm not filing an assault and battery charge against you is that you've got great grounds for a countersuit. What do you mean? This! Bless you, my boy. Mail me the check. Good night. Well, a few informal cups of coffee at the Oxnard Police Headquarters cut through most of the paperwork. But at that, it was after two when I finally picked up my car and drove the inland highway for home, past dark, quiet farms, where down-to-earth people made down-to-earth livings and slept at night. Yeah, the countryside was full of them. So it was with a real sigh of relief that I finally opened the door to my apartment and looked forward to some peace and quiet. Hello, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, aren't you Gracie Allen? Yes. Well, how'd you get into my apartment? Well, you see this key? Yeah. Well, it didn't fit, so I opened the door and walked in. Yeah, well, that figures. Uh, what can I do for you? Uh, Mr. Marlowe, you're a famous detective, and I think you're just the man to handle a very important case for me. Oh, really? Well, I'd be very happy to, Gracie. What's your problem? Well, you see, Mr. Marlowe, our sponsor won't let my husband, Sugar Throat Burns, sing on our program. Mm-hmm. And I want you to investigate the possibilities of another radio program George can sing on. Mm-hmm. And then our sponsor will realize he's wonderful and let him sing on our show. Oh. Well, I'm sorry, Gracie, and the next time you pass my house, I'll be very grateful. Oh, thank you, and I'll be looking for you, too. Goodbye. Goodbye. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Lois Corbett, Rita Lynn, Don Randolph, Junius Matthews, Jack Moyles, and Jimmy Eagles. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with a kid hawking papers on Hollywood Boulevard. 
and move from there to a house full of hate on a quiet street, a blonde liar on ice skates and a corpse in a burned-out shack, and it all wound up right where it began, in the heart of the kid on the corner. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows immediately on most of these stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. The name of that episode was The Birds on the Wing. It was first broadcast on CBS November 26, 1949. Now, did my little description at the beginning help? Now, if I understand this correctly, and I had to listen to this, like, part of it twice. I didn't listen to the whole thing twice. Part of it twice. The first guy was the pilot, and he was in love with the girl. And he wanted to, but the girl was in love with the other guy. So we have the classic love triangle here, right? Well, the pilot decided to get rid of the other guy so he could have the girl. But there was a mistake in which parachute she put on. She put on the other guy's parachute. And so the other guy was supposed to die, but she died instead. Now, when the guy that packs the parachute realized what happened, he would have probably reported them to the police, so he had to be gotten rid of, so the pilot killed him too. All right? So the rich guy really had nothing to do with any of this, other than he was with the girl too. The girl couldn't make up her mind who she wanted to go with. She was what what we used to call fickled. But anyway, that's the way I read it. By the way, is that realistic that they would jump, or when they jump, they wouldn't deploy? That's the word you use, deploy their parachute until 500 feet. Well, old Bob looked it up here, and I googled what's the minimum deployment altitude for a parachute. And they will tell you that it's 2,000 to, it's 2,500 feet. And if you are a certified, a uh, jumper with uh, some kind of designation behind your name. It could be 2,000 feet. And then it said this. It said the absolute minimum considered safe to bail out of an aircraft using a, your reserve parachute on a sport parachute system is 1,000 feet. This would only be done during an aircraft emergency such as loss of power. So. Could they deploy their their parachutes at 500 feet and survive? Yeah, maybe. Maybe they could. But it sure ain't recommended. My kitties, it is uh, time to slam the lid on Wednesday, 
Cinco de Mayo, May the 5th's episode of Old Time Radio Mysteries here on the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. But don't worry, do not despair. We will be back tomorrow with our weekly Western, our Thursday Western. And you can't be sitting around all the time listening to Old Time Radio. You got dinner to cook and the kids to get ready for bed and uh, you got a lot of responsibilities, so I'll, I'll cut you loose. I'll let you do that, but we, we will be back together tomorrow. We're going to go out tonight with a song from 1949, but I'm, I'm going to fudge on this one a little bit. Uh, the, the song was best known in 1949. The biggest selling version of the song was by Bing Crosby. Uh, and I listened to it, and... Mm, I looked for another version of the song, and I found this one, and it's a much more contemporary version. It's by Willie Nelson and Sheryl Crow. So while this particular record was not a big hit in 1949, although Willie Nelson were around then, Sheryl Crow weren't, um, this song was a big hit. So just remember that. This was a big hit in 1949, and they don't do it all that differently, but uh, had a better sound, in my opinion. That's just my opinion, and I like Big Crosby. All right, this is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me. See you tomorrow, everybody. Bye-bye. Sounding names far away over the sea, those far away places with the strange sounding names are calling, calling. China or maybe Siam I want to see for myself those far away places I've been reading about in a book that I took from the shelf And I keep wishing That I was somewhere else 
waiting on a train And I pray for the day that I can get underway And search for those castles in Spain They call me a dreamer And maybe I am But I know that I'm longing To see Those far away places With a strange sounding name Calling, calling Strange 